Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mary Jo Schrade, Assistant General Counsel and Regional Lead for Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit. Mary Jo, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Well, thanks for having me. I'm really delighted to be here, and I'm doing great. Thanks. (laughs) Awesome. Before we get into the main part of our discussion, Maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of your background, what your current role is, and then an introduction to Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit. Sure. Um, So I, as you said, am an assistant general counsel um, at Microsoft. And so that role is in the legal department, but I am mainly focused on our digital crimes unit, which is a part of our legal department. And so Our Digital Crimes Unit is a group of attorneys, investigators, but also we have people who are experts in machine learning and data scientists who help us in investigations and um, assessments of what's impacting customers. And then they provide that information to us to enable us to take action to try to protect customers and um, address um, cyber crimes. Wow, it's so interesting. It must be really exciting to come to work every day. You must have some incredible discussions internally, no? It's super interesting. I mean, I, I've been at Microsoft now for 21 years. So, you know, I started when I was 12. Um, but <laughs> I uh, I um, really, the reason I've stayed so long is because it's such a great job and it's so interesting. So it's a lot of fun. Every day is different. It's weird, right? Because it feels to me, and I remember when Microsoft was founded, right? So I'm, I started when I was 11, I think. But like, it must be accelerating now, just the changes. We can talk in a little bit about the crimes and stuff like that, but the development in the technology world, and you must have seen this in the 21 years that you were there, it's accelerating so fast, it's almost hard for me to keep up with, no? Yeah, definitely. It's it's constantly changing. And I think that's what makes it interesting because um, you're not only trying to assess what's happening, but also anticipate what's going to happen next because things are constantly shifting. The cyber criminals are, are constantly looking for new ways to take advantage of people. And so we really, it, it just keeps us on our toes. What a great job it sounds like. How would you categorize the current digital security landscape from your perspective, and what are some of those trends that are occurring in this region, yeah? Well, in Asia, we're seeing an increase in the sophistication and complexity of cyber attacks. So things aren't as simple as they once were. And one of the reasons I think behind this is that the criminal networks who are behind the vast majority of cybercrime are actually offering cybercrime as a service in addition to being cyber criminals themselves. So it kind of enables almost anyone to become a cyber criminal in some way. And therefore it really increases the risks and and the attacks and where they're coming from. And um, so it's really a challenge for all sizes of businesses and and individuals in, in Asia. Wait, but that's really interesting. I think in most people's minds, there's a profile of a person who's a cyber criminal. Maybe they're acting in groups of two or three. You know, they're sitting in the dark somewhere doing something bad. But you're suggesting that there's actually an institutionalization of this where they say, we figured out how to do these things. And we can, you can pay us, like almost as a SaaS business, to do this for you. 
Absolutely. They'll either create it for you and you can leverage their tools yourself, or they'll do it for you and you'll share in the proceeds um, in some way. So it's definitely become a much larger threat. And then kind of layered on top of that is the opportunism that they are um, taking advantage of of current issues. So for example, the COVID-19, um, when when this first was something that was causing people to shift to work from home, I think they saw that as a as a real um, opportunity for them. And so they they decided that they would use the COVID theme in their lures for phishing campaigns and that kind of thing to increase the likelihood that someone would click on a link because it might say, um, find out where you can get benefits for unemployment, or here's information about how to protect your family and things like that, using COVID as something that people were really anxious to know more about. And as a result, I think they probably had increased success for some period of time until people realized what was happening. So companies themselves have been growing in sophistication as well, and the defenses that they put up for cyber attacks. And I guess Maybe you would help a little bit if you could define it, if that's okay. Like if you could just give what your understanding or definition is of a cyber attack, and then I can ask some more sort of targeted questions on that, if that's okay. Yeah, so there are lots of different kinds of cyber attacks, sure. and I think it really depends on what the ultimate intention is. So for example, there are phishing attacks, um, which are where they would send you an email and try to get you to click on something or maybe a text message or something like that and try to get you to click on a link um, that that would infect your computer with malware, for example. So, I mean, just since March of 2020, when everybody shifted to working at home, we've seen a 677% rise in phishing attacks across the world. Wow. And we're seeing 50 million password attack attempts on average every day. So you can see that that the kind of things that are happening, ransomware, for example, or encountering malware, it's, it's really high. Even in Asia, is um, the encounter rate for malware is 1.6 times higher than the rest of the world. And for ransomware, 1.7 times higher. So it's just really so dispersed. Um, on top of that, there are still the things like where people are trying to get your banking information um, and do things like that. So there's just so many layers of things that I think that the IT department or individuals at home have to worry about. So what's changed in the last 12 months? If we think that COVID has increased these cyber attacks that you've just mentioned, if you're sitting at a desk at work, right? If you're sitting at work at Microsoft or if you're sitting at work at Goldman Sachs, your computers are ostensibly protected by the IT department there. But when things moved pretty quickly to hybrid, and we did a whole episode with Microsoft as well on hybrid work and the future of work, what changes when you just take your laptop home or you just have a laptop at home and start working? How hard is it for companies then to keep up with that? Or what has to change for them to make sure that their employees are protected at home when it's harder to kind of monitor what's on the machine, if that makes sense? Yeah, it has been a real challenge. So I think that and the fact that it was unplanned, you right. know, yes. I think if a, if a business were thinking about this for years in advance, sure. then they would have had a different approach. So I think that what many companies did 
is shift to the cloud if they could, um, because then they get help in sort of managing and overseeing the security. But they also have had to be careful and instruct their employees, for example, to update when when updates are required if they're working on their own computer versus the company's computer. So I think it's it's created sort of a new level of managing employee devices that probably wasn't um, done extensively beforehand, um, except for perhaps large corporations. So I think there was a big shift, but I think the biggest thing that we've seen and continue to see is that shift to the cloud to try to decrease the the issues that could come up for them um, by having the cloud provider helping to um, provide the security as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to talk about cloud in a second, because I think there that shift as well as bring up a lot of other issues that need to be resolved, particularly on sort of downtimes and insurance and stuff like that, about how you protect those things. But I want to stay on topic here. How have you, has Microsoft also seen an increase in specifically in tech support scams in the past 12 months where like people are sitting at home, don't know what to do. So people reach out to try to scam them that way as well. Yes, definitely. Um, Microsoft recently conducted a survey across uh, a number of markets, including four markets in Asia, um, just to try to assess what is happening in terms of tech support scams. And so just for those who may not know what we're referring to, a a tech support scam would be, like you said, when you're um, working on something and you have a technical problem and you look for a solution online and either... Um, you click on a link and um, go to what looks like a website for a reputable company, but isn't actually, or you might get a pop-up on your computer that says that there's something wrong with it and that you need to click on this link or call these people to fix the problem. And the problem with this is that it pretends like it's a major tech company, for example, like Microsoft, the the when a pop-up comes up on someone's computer it says you're about to lose all your documents on your computer they're they're you know you've been attacked call immediately you know and so it creates this sense of urgency for people where they just are you know i'm sure really afraid of what could happen especially if they're using a work computer and so they they call and fall victim to these scammers unbelievable in your experience And it's so weird for me. I'm 56 years old, right? But I still consider my mind in this field to be skewing younger. And because I've been dealing with technology my whole life, I don't feel like I'm even part of my own generation, if that's fair. But is there there a generational gap here as well? In other words, do people my age and older get scammed more often? Or does it skew? Because younger people that grew up with technology must look at it and say, no way. Or is that, am I missing something there? Actually, it's interesting. Younger people seem, um, at least according to our survey results, to be the victim more frequently than uh, baby boomer generations. Um, so uh, they are more likely to um, engage in with a scammer as opposed to realizing it's a scam and stopping the encounter. And then they're more likely ultimately to pay money. So the, the wow. millennial generation and Gen Z are the ones most likely, and this is kind of across across geographies that we're seeing this, most likely to be scammed and most likely to pay money. Wow, I definitely would not have guessed that. So you talked about across geographies. 
Is it different, like is the impact different in our region, in Asia, than it is globally or specifically in the U.S. and Europe? We see variations, but the impact is generally the same. So at first, the scammers were targeting English-speaking countries. So Australia saw a much higher rate of attack or scam uh, outreach there. And so we still do see a good bit more in Australia than in other places. But we're seeing it now in Japan and Singapore and India, for sure. In fact, there's been a dramatic increase in India in the past couple of years since we did the previous survey. Right. So fascinating. So what can, so companies kind of have this, I wouldn't say under control, but when they see an attack, I'm presuming that they at least know what to do, right? What can consumers do? Because they're particularly now during COVID, they're kind of on an island at home or maybe in a co-working space some, somewhere. But what can they do to protect themselves from any kind of cyber attack, like a digital security breach or these scams in general? Yeah, so um, there are a few things that you can do, um, whether you're you know, using your corporate resources or your personal ones, um, if you encounter something like this. So one of the things that we're telling people is that if you are looking for help uh, with a particular problem, so if it's a problem with Microsoft, to go to Microsoft.com and search for a solution to the problem you're encountering rather than to just do a, a search on your search engine saying uh, hotmail repair or All whatever right. it might be. And so that way you don't inadvertently end up at a site that is intended to look as though it's Microsoft when it's not really. Right. So so that's one, one piece of advice. I, the other thing is that um, I think that the scammers have been really successful with these pop-ups because of what I was saying about it creates a sense of urgency. Some of them have a, a lot an alarm sound that actually is really throws people off guard and and causes them I think to be really afraid of what's happening and as a result I think they're not thinking as clearly when they engage with the scammers and obviously that would be the scammers intent so our um, edge browser and internet explorer as well we have now a feature in there to address these pop-ups where the scammers used to make it so that the pop-ups couldn't be closed um, or it was difficult to close the pop-ups and make them stop making that noise. But now the Edge browser has capacity to close that. And so regardless of what the scammer's intent is to help to allow you to close it when you want to close it. So close out of that. Um, I think some of the other things are just clues that you hear along the way, just kind of think through that. So these scammers, they want remote access to your PC, for example, or your phone. And if you don't know who these people are, if you didn't initiate this outreach yourself through um, the legitimate website, I would be very hesitant to let someone that you're not familiar with have access to your computer because once they come in for remote access where they're supposedly helping you fix a, uh, something wrong with your computer, what they're really doing is looking for your personal information, stealing your ID card or if you have a copy of your passport on your on your laptop, they'll get take that. They'll try to get your banking information and they'll also stay on your computer even after you think that they are gone so that they can come back and browse around some more. So I would say just don't let people 
have access to your laptop in this situation unless it's someone you know to be legitimate. Right. If you feel like someone's kind of hacked into your computer or you've been the victim of a cyber attack, like you said, they'll come back or just stay on your machine and just keep rooting around and looking for your bank information, your insurance information, whatever, trying to find out how much money you have and how, how much of their time it's worth to keep paying attention to you. But how can I tell if there's somebody like on my machine? Do I need to go into a prompt and type like, who? Do you know what I mean? Like a Unix command or some kind of command to do that? And if I find them there, what do I do with them? How do I get them off? I think that the simplest thing to tell people is to disconnect from the internet completely, like cut your connection to the internet. So um, that way it will disconnect their session with you. And then I would I would take my computer after that to someone to have it looked at um, to see wow. if they've loaded malware on there. They may have loaded um, credential stealing malware, for example, onto your computer when you weren't looking. And I would say that it's important to look at those things. I know that some of the reports that we received in, we work with a, an, a nonprofit in Australia that um, actually interviews victims and, and talks to them about, you know, why, why were you engaged with this person and what happened? And, you know, there's, I think that there's a lot of trust initially, and then kind of a bullying to continue along. Right. And in this one particular couple had this discussion with the scammer and then left on vacation, not realizing <laughs> that the scammer was still connected to their computer. And when they got home, they realized $19,000 had been transferred out of their bank account to the scammers. So, you know, those are the kind of things that can happen. And the reason why, even if it, it might be legitimate, it's best to not allow them to access your computer and to do the steps yourself if you need to. But I would say to just avoid somebody that you didn't go look for yourself and determine to be the expert that you need help from. Look, I used to, and I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but I used to be a sysadmin on a floor of 100 workstations when I was at Morgan Stanley years ago. So we got some training in these scams and, you know, how some of the emails that we would receive had bad spelling in it. And for some reason, the bad spelled, the poorly spelled emails were well-known as scam emails, but also they would insert, you know, if they said, please click here for customer service, if you put your mouse over it, if you just moused over it, it would have like a PHP script in there that would access, you know, your hard drive and stuff like that. So it would activate a program. I remember telling my parents, like, don't ever click on this thing before you look at it. And if you see something that looks like it's not a link, just don't ever click, right? Is that still something that happens? They're so sophisticated today that I don't think that that would be the only way. I mean, obviously, sure. if you hovered over a link and it said something different than what it was supposed to say, surely that's a sign. But that you that can't be the only thing that that people are told because they're very sophisticated in some cases about the way they do this. But I, I have heard that the misspellings that they did in some of their um, scam emails were intended to filter out those who are looking at it as if it, to see if it's a scam. So you would notice the misspelling and therefore wouldn't call them because they don't want you to call them. You're going to waste their time. Right. They only want, you know, people who they think will be victims to call. So uh, I've, I've heard that theory anyway, that, that they intentionally misspell so that 
you will uh, filter yourselves out and they will only have the people who didn't notice the misspellings. But I'm not sure if that's true. But there's also, you know, homoglyphs are used, um, which are the if you spell out Microsoft.com, but in the O of Microsoft, you put a zero. Right. So that when people are looking quickly, they would think it is um, correct. There are also some letters in the Cyrillic alphabet that are actually are, of course, different letters, but they look exactly the same as a letter in the in the English alphabet. And so sometimes they will insert a Cyrillic letter um, so that hovering over it may not help you because it may still say Microsoft, but maybe the R or, the, or you know, some other letter in there is actually just from another character set. Alphabet. Right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. These are terrible people. Just really terrible. Um, I can imagine an O with an umlaut over it. Like there are just so many different things you could do. We should not encourage anybody to do this. Do, do we have a sense for how big on the consumer side, like on the company side, I get it. And I think it was just a few months ago where some people hacked into the pipeline in the United States, if I remember this correctly, and asked for four or $5 million ransom, which to me seems like super low. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> if it's for a gas pipeline, but how big do we think the consumer market is for the sort of monetary amount that can be taken by scammers? It's hard to say. And, yeah. and I don't think I don't think we know because as Microsoft, we can see what's attacks are coming toward our customers on our cloud. But we can't really see what the customers who have been impacted have done, except right. for in this tech support fraud survey. So. At least in the in the tech support fraud survey, we can see that we get 6,500 reports every month from victims of tech support fraud who took the time after they realized they had become victims and reported it to Microsoft. So we have something at Microsoft.com whack report a scam, where if anyone who has been believes they've been a victim of a Microsoft or Xbox or Hotmail or whatever it might be, Microsoft related scam that they can report it and we will actually take that information and build cases and provide that to law enforcement to take action against the scammers. Um, but in these reports, I mean, 6,500, going back to your question about how many there would be and how right. much money was lost, that's only the people who not only realized that they were scammed, but took the time to right. complete a report. So obviously that must be a very small percentage of the overall number of people scammed and it, it's pretty high. But with that said, you know, 6,500 reports on top of the um, work that we do with our data scientists and the machine learning models we use to, to scan and assess what's happening, um, what the scammers are doing, we've been able to um, refer cases in India. We've already referred um, and they've taken, they've done 38 um, police raids in India at 38 different call centers um, as a result of what our investigators and analysts did with the information that came from reports from people who were victims. So it's been quite impactful. More than 90 people have been arrested and are being prosecuted now. And of course, the work continues. So there's a little bit, we talk about this a lot, but it, there's a little bit of an arms race, not a little bit. There's an arms race going on, right, between the scammers and the hackers and the people that are trying to protect them. 
And you, you may not know the answer to this. I, I may not know it either. But is there a way that Microsoft uses artificial intelligence? And maybe you've said this and I just missed it. It uses AI and ML to monitor just what's happening like out in the world and then prevent it from happening, but then maybe alert authorities and say, you know, in the same way where I can profile someone and say he's robbed a bank before, he's probably going to rob a bank again kind of thing. And if I see some similar sort of bank robbery looking activity, I can just alert people before it happens or if I hear planning about it. Is there a strategy for that as well using AI and ML? Does that make sense? It does make sense. And we use AI and ML in, um, in the digital crimes unit ourselves um, in order to assess what's most impacting our customers. But at the same time, like Windows Defender and Edge, the browser right. and, you know, Microsoft 365, there are all these other groups that are using AI machine learning to protect customers. So it's something that they're looking at different variations on what's happening. You know, some of the things that happen, for example, will never be seen by somebody who's actually using, you know, Office 365. But um, if there is a harmful link that's found for one customer, and we realize that link has been sent to many other customers, we actually can detonate the link before the customer can click on it. And you may have seen when you're clicking on a link that sometimes a box would come up and say, um, this is not secure, you know, this, it looks like this may be fraudulent or something right. like that. So that's another feature that comes out of the, the AI and machine learning that can identify and provide those real time. So the minute that Microsoft becomes aware of something, the fix that we can put in place can go out across the world that minute in an automated way. That is super cool. I try to make offline equivalencies, right? So people that aren't so technologically savvy can understand it. It almost sounds like there's somebody like watching or a little bit of watching going on. And if your house looks like someone's going to perpetrate a crime inside your house you, and you don't even know it, that someone's put up a digital wall in front of it and they just bump into it and go like, darn, got to go to another house just before they do it. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of cool that some people may not even know they're being protected, but they are anyway, which is neat. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something that's not always visible. You know, it's not always a pop-up. It'll just be removed. It'll be identified and detonated and taken away. And so it's really, that's where the magic happens, awesome. like you say. Yeah. It's um, it, it's this team. We have 3,500 people who only focus on that, who only focus on this cybersecurity aspect of of protecting customers and protecting Microsoft as a platform. I love it. This is one of the reasons why I love having these conversations is because I think most people just look at the products that they use, you know, including Excel and PowerPoint and Windows and Edge and stuff and just think this is a great product, but don't understand all of the cybersecurity stuff that goes into making it even better for them. I think that's kind of cool. The last thing I want to ask you is what role do governments currently play? We spent a lot of time talking about consumers and corporations, but what role do governments play and I guess more importantly, what role do we think they should play? So I talked a little bit about how we're working with law enforcement, both in the U.S. and in India. And, right. and so that's a big way, like the Department of Justice in the U.S. has been quite active at dealing with these scammers in, in Europe as well. Um, so so that's that's one obvious place of dealing with these kind of scammers. But I But I also think that it's important for for governments around the world to and, and businesses and to share threat 
intelligence to share information in order to, you know, raise everybody up to the point where we can all be um, secure. So like Microsoft provides a feed to governments about threats that are that we see that are involving malware for free. And it we provide that information when we receive that for for the governments that are in our program. And and that's kind of an example of just providing this not charging anything, just getting it out there to try to help them have as much information as they can have in order to help fight crime. Yeah, in a way, it's almost like the community watch, right? In other words, if I'm just sitting there protecting my house and nobody ever perpetrates a crime on it, that's great. But it's better if the neighborhood is safe, if that makes sense. Right, exactly. I mean, that what we want is a safe neighborhood, a safe worldwide neighborhood. <laughs> okay, Mary Jo. Look, I think that's a great way to end. I want to thank you so much for doing this. Mary Jo Schrade, Assistant General Counsel and Regional Lead for Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit. That was awesome. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Michael. Thanks. <laughs>